Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Sacklariatis, the host of the channel. On the show today, we are pleased to have Professor Jacqueline Hazelton. Dr. Hazelton is an assistant professor in the Department of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College. She's on the show today to talk about her new book, Bullets, Not Ballots, Success in Counterinsurgency Warfare. Her views are are her own completely and not representative of any government entity, and we are thrilled to have her on the show. Dr. Hazelton, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you began researching counterinsurgency? Yes. I am a political scientist uh, focusing on international relations and within that specializing in international security. Um I started to focus on counterinsurgency when I got to a PhD program with Robert Art at Brandeis University. I had studied terrorism and Islamic political thought in the um, CIR program at the University of Chicago. But when I got to Brandeis and started working with Bob Art, it, we were getting into the period where things were looking worse in Iraq. And I became very curious about what exactly the occupying forces were doing on the ground, militarily and otherwise, and what was coming of it. And this taps directly into uh, a significant area of research in in IR, which is uh, compellence, the use or threat uh, force to attain political goals. Um, so increasingly, I started paying attention to counterinsurgency. I took a course with Barry Posen at MIT on military intervention. And it became more and more clear the more I read, including things like memoirs from participants, that the story of what happened in these campaigns was more wishful thinking than anything else. When I turned to the... Um, contemporaneous archival material, it became even more clear that the accounts we have of these successful campaigns that are presented as models for Western military intervention, in fact, look very little like their descriptions. Well, that's a terrific segue to the book you've just published. Uh, Because in the book, Bullets Not Ballots, you argue that what you call the good government governance model of counterinsurgency, what uh, you know, the lay reader will kind of think of as hearts and minds approach to counterinsurgency um, is not an effective roadmap to counterinsurgency success. So why isn't it effective and what is? It's not effective because fundamentally a Western liberal great power demanding reforms from a counterinsurgent client is not going to get them. 
the counterinsurgent is fighting to keep the wealth and power that it has. That's why it's fighting the insurgency in the first place. If it was willing to make reforms, it would have done so. There's nothing that the intervening great power can offer or threaten to that counterinsurgent government that is likely to induce reforms absent conditions within the state experiencing the insurgency and the counterinsurgency campaign. Further, the problem with existing work telling us how the good governance approach works is multifold. First of all, it's normative rather than analytical. Second, it's not particularly well-designed in terms of social science theory or methodology. Um, And third, there are a number of significant assumptions that remain unexamined. And fourth, this work simply doesn't present a theory of how the good governance approach should work and test it. It simply says, this is what you do, or this is what we did. In the book, you look at several cases of counterinsurgent conflicts, and you distill some of the ingredients to success. Can you talk about what those are and who the key actors are in these conflicts? In my compellence theory, I argue that counterinsurgency success is primarily a domestic political process of violent state building. The state building process towards political stability has historically been convulsive. If we look back, that's what we see. We also see that political order arises from elite efforts to prevail over uh, violent political rivals. We see elites rule to protect their own interests and reforms are regime suicide. And we see that once elites have determined through violent competition, which of them will dominate and at what cost to which actor, then we see political stability last as long as the elite bargain holds. My specific argument about what causes uh, counterinsurgent success is that Compellence, the use and threat of force, destroys the insurgency as a fighting force and as an organization, breaking its will and its ability to fight on. There are two ways in which this is done. There is a political path and a military path, and both of them are necessary. Neither is sufficient. The political path is the accommodation of rival elites. This is the government elites and and partner elites supporting the counterinsurgent, offering rewards to rival elites to gain cooperation from political leaders and military leaders as necessary in exchange for information on the insurgency, in exchange for the provision of military capabilities, in exchange for cooperation. The the, uh, military path involves, first of all, a direct effort, an attrition campaign against the insurgency itself to break its will to fight, as well as its ability to fight. The direct, indirect military effort involves the use of brute force to block the flow of resources to insurgents. And this is often achieved through the tight military control of civilians, things like prison camps, things like rationing of food and other basic supplies. It's, it's not a pretty process. 
In the book, you focus on counterinsurgencies where there is a liberal great power intervener. And already I hear you, heard you um, kind of talking about the ways in which the liberal intervener makes these extreme demands on the counterinsurgent client. And one of the terrific contributions of this book is really recentering the counterinsurgent clients and the challenges they face in fending off uh, an insurgency and in what is for them sometimes an existential, but always a local um, political crisis. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of putting those actors at the center of your analysis and research? Yes. Um, first of all, I focused on great power military intervention because great powers have the greatest capability to do the most damage. If we think about military intervention since uh, World War II or since the Cold War or since 9-11, we see military interventions that have destabilized not only regions, but in ways, uh, the entire globe in political terms. Think about the flow of refugees from Libya, from other parts of Africa caused by insurgent, counterinsurgent interactions in those states, supported where the counterinsurgent is supported by um, a Western great power. I know that the great power intention is to make things better but the problem is that very often meaning to help, trying to help, trying to do well doesn't work for reasons that, as you say, have directly and immediately to do with what's going on in the conflict within the state. Um, I should add that you mentioned um, – extreme demands on the counterinsurgent government by the great powers. And one of the real problems here is that the great powers don't see demands for reform as extreme. They see it as normal that government should operate in ways that provide for their people, that protect their people, that respect their people's rights. But that is a U.S. ideal more than it is a reality anywhere. That is how Americans think government should work. If we look around us, we see that it's pretty hard to find a place where that is actually what happens consistently. Um, why are great powers blind to the difficulty of the demands that they're placing on their uh, counterinsurgent partners or clients? I think there's this, and this is problematical in great power terms more generally as well. I think that great powers have a very difficult time recognizing how limited their power is outside their own territory. There is an assumption that the great powers' wishes and will will prevail inside other states and internationally. And yet we know in real life that's not how it works. That brings us to a one of the more um, fascinating uh, contributions of your book, at least in my uh, opinion. Um, and, you know, one of the kind of the axiomatic um, admonitions of counterinsurgency warfare is to beware of partnering with, you know, pathologically corrupt local governments. Um, and you poke some holes in that view. And, and as you got, just got to, one of the problems is the blindness of the liberal great power interveners. 
But on the other hand, you explain in the book why it's so hard for the counterinsurgent governments to institute reforms. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of the equities that are in play for the counterinsurgent client governments? Yes, it's that really comes to the heart of the investigation. A government, by and large, rules to, like any bureaucracy, rules to behaves in a way that protects its own interests. And if we look at any particular government in the world right now, we can see that a primary interest is in protecting itself, protecting its own equities, as you say. One of the um, one of the things that I drilled down into in the book is that, and this is this is counter to the conventional wisdom on counterinsurgency, is that counterinsurgent success is a function of an elite pact to share power. It's not a function of popular support for the government. It's not a function of removing or destroying support for the insurgency. Elites want to keep their wealth and power. Rival elites, including insurgents, want to gain sufficient wealth or power to allow them to stop fighting and benefit from their gains. Um, By elites, I mean political entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs of violence. These can be religious, cultural, community leaders, intellectuals, business leaders, uh, the police, uh, the military forces, media, criminals, and anyone whose primary role is organizing and supporting violence, including insurgents. So it is largely, I found, I did not go into this project expecting this by any means, I found that it is these deals among elites, co-optation, essentially, that leads to the end of the fighting and to long-term political stability. It turns out that the elites shape others' choices. They can get their constituency, formal or informal, to cooperate or not cooperate with the counterinsurgent government, for example. And elites mediate relationships between popular formal and informal groups and the government as well. So it's really the elites who are playing the key active role within the state. And what they want, there are ways in which it can be provided by the great power in the short term, but probably not forever. And even when a a counterinsurgent government agrees to provide something to a rival at the behest of the great power, um, the counterinsurgent government is likely to um, cut the flow of those resources to its rivals as soon as it can. Now, before we jump into some of the cases that you explore in the book, I wanted to talk about the methodology of case selection. And that's because in the book, you proudly transgress one of the kind of cardinal rules of political science research, um, which is never to select on the dependent variable. So why did you decide to do that? And how did you pull it off? All right. Good question. Remember that the harbor of selecting on the dependent variable is based on the problem it creates in quantitative research. It leads to the truncation of one's findings. 
this is not a quantitative study. This is a qualitative study. I followed George and Bennett in selecting on the DV because it enables me to see what variables are and are not necessary or sufficient to achieve the selected outcome. It leverages my ability to consider the variation on my independent variables, these political and military efforts moving in train within each case. It helps me understand and explain the processes at work and provide the ability to see whether my predictions are actually congruent with the empirical evidence in the cases. And it helps me identify what is not either necessary or sufficient. And this is particularly useful in this project because the predictions that flow out of the good governance approach are very different from the predictions that flow from the my, from my compellence theory. Well, I'm convinced. So let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's um, look first. Um, I think you have six cases in total. Um, and I want to look first at Malaya and the Philippines because those are two archetypal examples of uh, counterinsurgent success in the kind of Western canon. So let's start with Malaya. Why is that a misleading example of the good governance model of counterinsurgents warfare? And if you can tell us how you went about um, in your research proving that to be the case. Okay. All right. First of all, Malaya has appeared and reappeared uh, fairly often in discussions about counterinsurgency, first during Vietnam, and then when things began looking difficult in Iraq, with a little bit of a glance towards it when the United States was involved in El Salvador. The conventional wisdom on counterinsurgency success in Malaya is that the intervener provided aid, that is Great Britain, which was the colonial power. The government in Malaya made popular reforms, reducing the grievances of the people. This gained support for the government. This weakened support for the insurgency. And the military attacked the insurgency directly to break its capability to fight. Um, more specifically, the conventional wisdom is that Britain initially, initially failed to defeat the insurgency because it used force indiscriminately, including collective punishment, forced deportation, and imprisonment without trial. But then the British realized that they needed to seek popular support through reforms and the careful use of force to avoid damage to civilian interests. And in the words of Robert Comer from 1972, Robert Comer, uh, leader in the uh, in President Johnson's pacification effort in Vietnam, Comer wrote, the government in Malaya undertook a variety of political, economic, and social measures accompanied by an information campaign to win hearts and minds, along with the move towards independence. And typically in the literature, insurgent defeat is dated to 1954. So how did I go about figuring out what was going on with that? First of all, I laid out the predictions of my theory. And that is, first of all, that we should see the government accommodate rival elites for information, cooperation, and military power. 
Second, that we should see the government use brute force to control civilians, to cut the flow of resources to the insurgents. Third, we should see the government use the additional assets it gains through accommodations to attack the insurgency directly, to break its capability and its will to fight. So it turns out all of those three predictions I found when I turned to interviews, memoirs, and uh, archives in Britain on the Malayan campaign. Um, First of all, I found out that according to the British themselves in Malaya, they considered the insurgency defeated in 1948, not 1954. And this matters because of the timing of counterinsurgency success. If reforms take place before the government defeats the insurgent threat militarily, or if popular support for the government rises before defeat of the insurgency, or if accommodations occur only after the government defeats the threat militarily, then my theory doesn't explain very much. Additionally, my theory cannot explain counterinsurgency success first, if the government does not control the populace, which I identify as necessary. Second, if the government implements reforms benefiting all, gaining popular support while reducing support for the insurgency, then defeats the insurgency, because I claim that none of those things are necessary. And third, if the government systematically avoids harm to civilians, even at military cost, then I can't explain counterinsurgent success because I claim that using force against civilians is necessary for success and uses of force may unfortunately involve harm. So the UK government considered the insurgents defeated by 1948. Uh, They thought a coordinated insurgent offensive was unlikely based on the group's inability to communicate. They found that the initiative has largely passed to the security forces and the bandits are in considerable difficulties. A year later, they reported that militarily the bandits are already beaten in the sense that they cannot now hope to succeed in their objects. By 1951, which, remember, is still three years before the usual dating of insurgent defeat, the British judged that with the insurgent withdrawal to the jungle and small bands, insurgents could no longer effectively mass, force, or communicate, or plan. This is not a functioning organization. By 1955, uh, the British declared that the present level of the emergency is such that the life of the country proceeds without significant interference, which sounds an awful lot like my definition of counterinsurgency success. The definition that I use comes from the U.S. Counterinsurgency Guide, which came out of the State Department in, I think... 2009. And what it defines as success is as follows. Marginalization of the insurgents to the point at which they are destroyed, co-opted, or reduced to irrelevance in numbers and capability. So basically, once the insurgency is reduced to something along the lines of an annoyance, 
is defeated. And this seems to me like a pretty realistic and achievable political objective. It doesn't require the absolute destruction of every possible insurgent. It doesn't require the banishing of any of the insurgent political beliefs or objectives. It basically means making sure that the insurgency no longer threatens the state. Um, So I also found, along with when the insurgency was defeated, the crucial question of how. The British defeated the insurgency by cutting the insurgents off from resources. They began driving residents into prison camps in 1948. Remember, this is the same year that the British declared the insurgency defeated. They used brute force control of civilians throughout the campaign. By 1952, and remember, this also is before the usual date of the defeat of the insurgency. More than half a million people had been rounded up and forced into so-called new villages. The British also targeted the insurgency directly with large military sweeps through insurgent areas and then jungle operations against the surviving bands who were clinging to life in small, small groups. They also, the British also used collective punishment. In 1952, there's a newspaper report about High Commissioner Sir Gerald Templer berating the residents of a new village because they don't give him information on the insurgency that he believes they have. He punished them by imposing further controls on their movements and further rationing of food and other necessities. The villagers listened in silence, simmering at their, quote, unjust punishment, unquote. In 1955, our food denial, the British decided, is still the most effective weapon we employ against them, them being the insurgents. In 1957, the year that the, um, that the British handed over Malaya to become the independent state of Malaysia, uh, the British said that rationing food for civilians in prison camps was still the basis of operations, and the director of operations expected it to remain so after independence that year. There were accommodations. Starting in 1948, the British began accommodating the major elites within Malaya. There were the traditional Malay sultans, and there were the ethnic Chinese and ethnic Indian business leaders. What the British did specifically, they supported or sponsored communal organizations to channel their community's interests and more importantly, to provide benefits to the elites who took the leadership of these organizations. What this meant was that elites gained in return local status and the status of British support at a time when anti-British feeling was not prevalent. They gained a share in governmental and in informal power without political violence and at relatively low risk. They gained authority when they were given official positions in government. They gained support for their official and unofficial roles, and they gained a voice for their communities. There were no reforms. This is the third important point that I found. Plans for independence which Robert Comer and others often claim was a reform made to reduce popular grievances, plans for independence were not a response to the insurgency, but preceded it, dating back to 1942 and well-known at the time. 
In addition, beginning in 1946, the British chose to balance communal interests in government rather than doing away with them by creating what they had initially dreamed of and planned for, and that is a pluralistic democracy. That same year, in 1946, the British abandoned plans to give equal citizenship to all ethnicities and all residents in Malaya. And they did this in order to retain ethnic Malay support. The the ethnic Malays were the single largest group closely followed by the ethnic Chinese. And the British considered that they needed ethnic Malay support no matter what. And finally, in terms of reforms, only after 1952 were basic services begun to be provided in scattered ways and at irregular intervals in the new villages. And it wasn't the government providing these goods and services. It was charities, missionaries, and it was the Malaysian Chinese Association. And then... Finally, do we see popular support? No, and the British complained about it constantly. They never got the popular support they thought they needed to win. Um, The efforts of government, this is 1951, have been directed towards encouraging a spirit of nationalism, but so far with little success. In 1954, the populace was still apathetic. Uh, One official wrote, The public has, as usual, done its best to disprove Aristotle's dictum that man is by nature a political animal. Mm. Yeah, that's one of my favorite quotes. Great. Uh, In 1955, despite British efforts, the majority of the people have so far been brought only to a state of reasonably friendly apathy. And a year later, in 1956, local leaders remained uninterested in the emergency. So... That is what I found when I went to memoirs, when I went to one, I think I had one interview with someone I also talked with about uh, the campaign in Dofar, and primarily when I went to the British documents themselves. These were contemporaneous documents. There was every reason for officials in Malaya to be claiming great success in all of these areas because they were reporting back to... um, Far East headquarters and from there back to London, and yet they were not claiming success in any of these areas they thought they needed to succeed in to defeat the insurgency, and yet they defeated the insurgency. So I know I promised I would ask about the Philippines, but I'm slightly concerned I'll just be putting you in the position of telling the same story with different characters. It's very similar. So maybe we'll pivot and look at El Salvador, where the outcome is a little different. Um, So perhaps, yeah, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you found there and why um, the success that was achieved was not as robust um, as we saw in uh, Malaya, for example. Yes, it's a fascinating case. It's a different kind of success because the counterinsurgent government does not militarily defeat the insurgency. And this is one of the big differences. It is never able to defeat the FMLN. In fact, FMLN continued military pressure is one of the things that ultimately forced the military government to the table leading to the Chapultepec Accords of 1992. So this case ended in a peace agreement rather than a complete military victory. 
And it's the one case that looks like that. And in this case, we also do not see accommodation of rival elites beyond those already within the pale, those already within the military, those already within the government as civilians to the degree that any civilians were really part of the government. The the Salvadoran state was a military state and had been led by the military since its inception. And the country had seen a, a process of slight liberalization and then uh, crackdown, slight liberalization, and then crackdown throughout its history. And the military leadership was sure that giving any tiniest little bit of an inch to the insurgency would cause the collapse of the government, and they would lose everything, including probably including their lives. This was um, this was a zero sum game for the government, less so for the insurgency because the insurgency agreed to peace talks well before the government did and gave up on some of its main demands in order to reach the peace deal. Um, It did not get its economic demands. It only got some of its political demands. Basically what it got that mattered was the FMLN was recognized as a political party to contest elections with every other party. Uh, The military removed itself from its constitutional role as guardian of security within the state and agreed that it would not try to seek power through violence. And it agreed, and this was humiliating, but the generals really had nothing left at this point. And the military agreed to a cleansing of the security forces to get rid of at least some of the worst human rights offenders. And the reason that the generals gave gave their agreement to any of this was um, twofold pressure. There was pressure from uh, El Salvador's neighbors there and a UN peace process. There was, along with that, U.S. pressure under George Bush following uh, President Reagan and following the end of the Cold War. There was pressure from President Bush to shut it down, get it over with. The military's slaughter of uh, Jesuits and their housekeeper and her daughter was the last straw for the United States at this point. It said, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. And then finally, on the other side, we have the continued military and political strength of the FMLN. So this this state-led effort and this insurgent-led effort together converged to force the military government to agree to a peace deal. We don't see that in any of these other cases. And we also don't see the level of accommodations that we see in other cases. The military was more likely to kill its rivals than anything else, including Archbishop Romero, who was assassinated as he said mass. So what may be becoming apparent to some of the listeners here is that a major contribution of this work of the book, excuse me, is the kind of historiographical work you do. Um, I wrote down in my notes that you take a surgeon's scalpel to the Western canon of counterinsurgency literature and dissect it sinew by sinew. Um, (laughs) Obviously a little strange. Thank you. (laughs) um, You you certainly do um, provide this um, logic for why we should have a healthy dose of skepticism 
when we're reading the history produced by staff colleges and liberal democracy. So can you talk a little bit about why um, the kind of histories produced by those types of institutions um, seem to evince the same kind of analytic flaws uh, time and time again, uh, even though the circumstances on the ground seem to vary? It's a really interesting question. I cannot place the blame solely on staff colleges, and I'll talk in a, mi- in a minute about the response of my students to my work. Um, it's staff colleges, it's think tanks, it's social scientists who do not question the assumptions of the good governance model. This is a, a prevalent problem. We see work on these cases rely on secondary sources, rely on tertiary sources again and again and again, and no one asks what actually happens. There's also a focus on what the great power asked for and what the counterinsurgent government promised, rather than looking at what the counterinsurgent government actually did, when it did it, and what came of it in political and military terms. So I think the problem goes back to the fact that a lot of people who write on counterinsurgency want to help. They want to make a bad problem better. And wishful thinking enters into this. Um, I think there is a certain lack of um, analytical effort in some of these cases. Um, it's, It's really worth an article just on its own, why the historiography is so bad. Basically, it recycles the same stories over and over and over. In terms of um, my students' responses to my work, what I find um, is that for a number of them, and these are military officers and their um, government, civilian-level counterparts and a few international officers, There is a lot of surprise. There's some consternation. And for a good number of students, it's like a light bulb goes on. They say, oh, my God, this is what I've been struggling with after all my deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. This is what's actually going on. And it makes sense. Once you point out that the good governance story is normative and intended to help, intended to support the great powers efforts and so on and so forth, and say, well, look around us. How many governments actually rule with good governance? Then it opens up a whole new world. Thank you. I'm going back a little bit, but thank you for um, correcting me on pinning all the blame on staff colleges. The last thing I want is all those people coming after me, um, you know, with me on my high horse having been a uh, complete subscriber to the good governance theory until about three days ago when I read your book. So um, it is, I think what makes it challenging is that a lot of the conclusions um, of your book are um, counterintuitive in a certain sense, because when you think um, at least anecdot- anecdotally about, you know, how excess violence, for example, can spawn um, rebellion and violence in turn due to the grievance um, created therein, um, you then kind of have to reconcile, you know, why doesn't that, um, you know, micro level truism that excess violence causes, creates a grievance, um, why doesn't that translate at the systems level um, when it comes to kind of the broad and deliberate use of violence against a 
civilian population? Well, that's a bunch of word vomit, but I'll, I'll move on to the next question for you, um, which is to ask, um, you know, given that you do teach um, military officers, and I imagine at this point you've briefed your book to some policymakers, um, if you had to kind of give the elevator pitch for your book, and offer you know one to two key takeaways, or um, provide kind of a roadmap for how uh, people in positions of authority should avail themselves of your findings here. What would you tell them, and and what advice would you give? Very briefly, contra the conventional wisdom about good governance reforms that democratize and protect civilians, counterinsurgency is an ugly process from start to finish. It does not involve reforms or popular support. It requires deals with some unsavory characters. It requires brute force control of civilians. And my policy recommendation that flows from that is do not intervene. The benefits, the potential benefits of retaining a threatened partner in power in a small distant country are very unlikely to outweigh the financial, the moral, the humanitarian costs of what counterinsurgency success actually involves, whether or not our narrative recognizes what it involves. So I did want to ask, uh, the thesis of this book, and um, the book in general is, of course, highly relevant for, for Western policymakers. However, you do not go into detail um, on the two counterinsurgency campaigns that are likely foremost in most um, of their minds, in my mind as well, and to a certain extent, um, and that's in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you have a very sensible reason why you don't go into those campaigns, but can you explain it briefly for our audience? Yes, yes. As much as uh, there is that needs analyzing about both of these campaigns, they do not fit into my research design because we do not have an outcome in either case. We do not have insurgent defeat or success in Iraq or in Afghanistan. They, I simply cannot analyze counterinsurgent success slash failure in these two cases because we don't know what's going to happen yet. Well, we, I think we all look forward to your book 10 years from now when, <laughs> when we finally have time to sit back and analyze those campaigns. Um, okay, before we wrap, wrap up, I wanted to ask you two um, lighter questions. The first, um, we had the Academy Awards last night. So I wanted to ask you what the best uh, t- uh, sorry, movie, and if you insist, you can also give me a book or a TV show on uh, counterinsurgency. So kind of what is the best and perhaps what is the most accurate? Ah, this is a really interesting question. In terms of movie, um, I have two. The first is Restrepo, which takes place in Afghanistan, and it shows you scene after scene of 20-year-old U.S. forces meeting with Afghan elders and drinking tea and eating goat and so on in attempting to come to a meeting of the minds and win their hearts. And we see the futility of this to the point where you want to beat your head against the wall. The other best movie that I would identify, if I had to pick only two, is The War Tapes, which takes place in Iraq. It is um, put together by the director from tapes recorded from the cameras, the uh, helmet-held cameras of, uh, I believe, National Guard soldiers sent to Iraq fairly early in the war. And once again, 
it's it provides some insights that um, that we don't usually get when we are told about counterinsurgency, whether it's in popular culture or whether it's in the media or whether it's in policy terms. We see these guys struggling to do their job, struggling to stay alive, and struggling to understand what's going on and what they're doing there. In terms of book, the one that I assigned to students when I taught counterinsurgency at um, at the University of Rochester was um, a book by Matthew Evangelista, who's at Cornell. Um, it's a book on the Chechen Wars. And it is a scholarly book, but it is a powerful read. It does not bog you down in jargon. It is about the Russian effort to pacify Chechnya. And I think it it displays in a way that most other work does not just how complicated the situation inside a state experiencing civil war is. Multiple actors, multiple interests, multiple um, local grievances, uh, who hates who, who's neighbors with whom, um, all the cross-cutting interests and personalities and just how difficult it is to understand any one of them just when they're put on the page in an organized fashion. And if you try to imagine what it's like to understand all that when you're in the middle of it, it becomes even more powerful because it underlines the degree to which outsiders coming into uh, a conflicted state are going to be overwhelmed by how little they know. Well, I now have some light fare for my summer reading. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like a phenomenal book. Um, before I let you go, um, if I'm not mistaken, you are working on um, a follow-up of sorts, another book project related to counterinsurgency. Is that right? To military intervention more broadly, yes. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. And in the meantime, I strongly recommend that our listeners uh, go buy your current book, which is Bullets, Not Ballots, Success in Counterinsurgency Warfare. Dr. Hazelton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me.